This is episode 46 of the Solia Pride podcast, and this is a new segment of the Solia Pride podcast. I think we started talking about doing this back on episode 20, maybe, and here we are 26 weeks later getting around to doing it. But I'm so, so honored, humbled, thrilled to have these two people join me today. So this is Swallow Your Pride podcast at the table. So this is a roundtable segment of myself and Dr. Paula Leslie and Dr. Marty Brodsky. So I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. And at the, if you go to the show description on iTunes, or if you go to the social media post on Facebook, uh, I'm sure it'll also be on Twitter as well. We have a survey. So let us know if you guys enjoy this episode, if you learn something from it, if you like this type of episode going forward, um, because, you know, these two really super busy researchers are willing to dedicate more time to it if it's something that you all enjoy. So uh, Paula Leslie is a professor and director of the Doctor of Clinical Science and Medical Speech Language Pathology at the University of Pittsburgh. She maintains full clinical licenses in the USA and UK, where she is a specialist advisor to the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapy and Swallowing Disorders. She publishes, provides support to researchers, and provides continuing education from grassroots to international level and across the health professions on complex clinical decision-making, ethics, and end-of-life decisions in vulnerable populations. And we also have Dr. Marty Brodsky, who is an associate professor of physical medicine and rehab at John Hopkins University and a fellow of ASHA. His clinical research is funded by the NIH, studying the effects of critical illness and critical care medicine on swallowing and the airway and their long-term outcomes. His clinical practice specializes in adult swallowing and communication disorders. And I'm me, Teresa Richard, and I don't have a long fancy, <laughs> I don't have a long fancy bio, so um, hopefully you will join the three of us at our new round table called Swallow Your Pride Podcast at the table. Hope you have a lovely glass of wine to join us with. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride Podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. A uh, few things, just a few things, I promise, today. Um... Show notes. Show notes are always available at swallowyourpridepodcast.com or go to bit.ly bit.ly forward slash SYP podcast and then zero and whatever episode number. So for this episode, it would be bit.ly forward slash SYP podcast 046. Um, and also we finally, 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 after a bajillion, kajillion messages are going to have the episodes transcribed. So the transcription for last episode with Vince Clark and for this episode are up on the website now and I am in the process of we're going back and I have all the previous episodes transcribed. It's just a matter of getting them double checked and uploaded to the website. So hang tight. So I know some of you are like, my friends want to listen, but they don't like to listen. They just want to read the transcript. So yes, you can now just read the transcript and we also will still be doing show notes for episodes that should require show notes. So um, the transcription for this podcast is up at 
bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash S-Y-P podcast 046. So it is almost the end of June. I June just like wholly, totally flew by. I don't know if anybody else is like insanely crazy busy, but I'm dying here. I'm, I'm anticipating seeing no patients in July at this point with how crazy busy it is now in June. But June is almost over, Dysphagia Awareness Month. I hope everybody took part in some sort of advocacy campaign or in-service. I know I've been encouraging everybody in our MedSLP Newbies group and also the Medical SLP Solution membership to do something. So it's also Aphasia Awareness Month, too. So do something, people. Do something this month. So in honor of Dysphagia Awareness Month, that MedBridge deal is back. So you can upgrade to the MedBridge premium plan for only 95 bucks includes all the patient handouts, unlimited CEUs, um, access to the mobile app and their home exercise builder, which is totally awesome. So really phenomenal researchers presenting on their great clinicians. Awesome site. I love everything about it. MedBridgeEducation.com forward slash SYP will get you that premium upgrade for uh, one full calendar year for 95 bucks. So when you do go to that link, or use promo code SYP, I do get a small commission from using that link to keep this podcast up and going. And also on January, oh my God, I said January. Yeah, I'm sitting here sweating right now. June 29th, we are going to be closing registration for the Medical SLP Solution. So if you've been wanting to get in, if you've been thinking of joining, if you've been hearing of all the cool CEU webinars we have going on, uh, we had Megan Sutton present yesterday on aphasia. We are having Dr. Kate Crivell come on and talk about voice and how it relates to swallowing. Uh, Dr. Jamie Fisher, uh, she was back on episode 19, maybe. I'm pretty sure. Jamie, don't be mad at me if that's wrong. No, I think it was like 13 or 14. If I was a good podcaster, I'd look it up and be professional. But um, <laughs> Dr. Jamie Fisher is presenting next month on trig and vent. Um, and those are all for ASHA CEUs that are free to members. So besides that, we have weekly resources that come out every single week. That's why they're weekly uh, in the form of handouts and training videos, all blind peer reviewed by university professors. So you can assure that they're um, accurate and up to date. And then we also have our private Facebook group that is moderated by university professors. So you'll definitely get some good clinical answers in that group. And we have a private forum on our website if you don't, if you're not on Facebook, if that's not your jam. So, so if you are thinking of joining, uh, you better hop on before June 29th, go to medslpsolution.com and join us. Um, why am I closing down registration? Because I'm insanely busy and I'm just exhausted, to be honest. <laughs> I want to spend as much time with those members in that group as I possibly can. And I want to, I love mentoring. I love helping people find the research. I love showing them the different resources. I love connecting people and, and relationship building. And I love, you know, if you're off on Dysphagia Island with this issue and I know somebody else has the same issue, you know, I love formulating those relationships with everybody in our group and I want to be able to spend more time doing that. And I can't do that if I'm distracted with more people coming in the membership and marketing that and all those things that go with that. So um, that's what's going on. We also are completely relaunching the Medical SLP membership website because it's gotten so crazy. We've had so many people join. So we're closing it down to prepare for the relaunch of that, which I don't know when it's going to be. So um, you better hop in now before we close that down. So we are closing the doors to registration for the Medical SLP solution on June 29th. The MedBridge promo ends June 30th. 
Don't forget you can download the show notes or transcriptions for each episode at SwallowYourPridePodcast.com. And I hope you love this new segment of Swallow Your Pride Podcast at the table with Dr. Leslie and Dr. Brodsky. Hello, everybody. Hi, Teresa. Hi, Teresa. How are you? Doing well. Good. Good, good. All right. I am so excited for this episode. We've been planning this for a million kajillion months now, and we finally got everybody together and on the same page. So thank you, thank you, thank you. But today we have Dr. Marty Brodsky with us and Dr. Paula Leslie with us, and we're going to have kind of a roundtable chat from different corners of the world, from different settings that we all work in, contributing different clinical researcher views. So Marty, tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University. I'm doing clinical research there. I'm primarily research, but probably very quickly going into some clinic. And every patient that I touch in research is an acute care patient in some form or fashion, starting out in the ICU and going into wherever they might go from there before hospital discharge. All right. And Paula? Hi. So I'm a professor at the University of Pittsburgh in Communication Science Disorders Department. And my clinical history was I worked for the National Health Service in the UK for 12-something years and covered absolutely everything. Kids with autism, schools, stroke rehab units, acute wards, everything, outpatients, inpatients. And naturally, if you work in hospitals, you do dysphagia work, which wasn't part of our scope at the time. I mean, it wasn't part of our training at the time, but I was doing that from the get-go. And I, at different points, actually ran a video thoroscopy clinic. And we had a really a really neat setup, which may feed into some of my thoughts about things. Here in Pittsburgh, I primarily teach. I volunteer once a week to go up and hang out with palliative care in their complex cases rounds which are actually about the real patients on the wards because historically they didn't have any speech language pathology input but I'm not part of the speech clinical team as such. All right so thank you both for being here this is great I'm so excited. So what are we going to talk about today? Who wants to chime in and tell everybody what we are here to hash over? Well, Marty is waving at me (laughs) furiously. So um, we would like to talk about the kind of, it started out with comparing endoscopy to video fluoroscopy in terms of swallow examinations. And that argument still rages, even though we think it's been, you know, kind of settled. So we wanted to touch a bit on that. But before we get into the argument of which is superior, or which should be used when, it's really important to take a step back and ask, should these things even be used at all? So what's in the lead up to these examinations? Because certainly I feel that we get very focused in on either a type of examination or a bit of the anatomy. And that doesn't actually, it's not the question we should be asking. And therefore, it won't give us the answer we need for working with the kinds of patients that we do. All right. So where should we start? I'm going to wave at Marty now. (laughs) Yes. Well, I think one of the things that we just discussed off air, if you will, were the differences in setting what's available in time versus what's available in equipment and personnel. You know, on one extreme of the continuum for me is the outpatient setting where perhaps you're even given 15 minutes in radiology or as much as 30 minutes in radiology and you are meeting that patient in radiology where you don't have time at all to do a clinical evaluation. 
the best you can get is a five minute question and answer session while you're pouring volumes and setting up consistencies and putting the lid on as to the quote unquote luxury of an acute care setting where you have a captive audience, if you will, and you have the luxury of being able to speak with a patient for as long as you want during a clinical evaluation. You're able to ransack the medical chart and get what you need in every corner and facet of the chart. And you're still given the same 15 minutes or half an hour in radiology. So these are very different settings that set you up for success or failure in some form or fashion uh, relative to time and relative to the ability to see as much of the patient as you want. So I think there are pros and cons to each setting. And I think we can address those situations. Teresa, I know that you work in the extended care facility setting. I'm not exactly sure what kinds of things you deal with, but I'm imagining something similar to the acute care area. Well, you know, yesterday I actually had a really interesting experience with a patient because I, you know, do the mobile fees and I bring the equipment in. So I'm just a contract service. I, you know, I'm more of a consultant role as opposed to, you know, I don't have any time constraints, which is my luxury. And I went in and the, the patient that I was seeing, the wife had said, you know, we're at the end, we're so glad you took the time to explain all of this to us because the speech pathologist just comes in at the 30 minutes, they leave. You know, so I'm glad that you were able to sit down and take the time to go through all this information. I'm not sure that the SLPs ever even dug through the chart as thoroughly as you did. So at first I took it as a compliment, but on the other hand, it's not. It's our system, unfortunately. So I don't know what, you know, obviously we can't all have these unrestricted time sessions. But, you know, I guess in the most picture-perfect world, Paula, what would you what would you say would be the most ideal scenario as far as clinical eval, instrumental? Can you paint that picture for us? So I think the question about setting is a good one. And I'll come back to this ideal picture because I think I pretty much had the ideal clinic in Britain. And it wasn't that Britain has all the most ideal clinics, but we set up a really good clinic. And there were a couple of principles behind that clinic, which I think could be applied here. But in terms of settings, we also have people who are geographically very isolated in this country. We have frail elders, particularly frail elders, but they might be frail youngers who could be several hours from a facility that can do an instrumental examination. And again, we get focused on the, well, how can we get them to the examination instead of should we even be doing the examination? And you could take that right back to the clinical side. So I would say until we step back and look at what is it we need to know to help the patient, that informs us as to what the question is that we should be asking to get the information we need. And while Marty was talking there about the people coming in and maybe only having 30 minutes, I was kind of thinking, well, who's requested the video for a scopic swallow study or the endoscopic swallow study? And I don't mean who signed the order like the physician, but let's presume there's a speech language pathologist somewhere in the background. It's a bit like getting, you know, a leg x-ray. The orthopedic surgeon didn't do the leg x-ray, but they need the leg x-ray to formulate treatment that they do so with the patient, right? So I get quite irritated when I see video fluoroscopic swallow reports, because that tends to be the more common thing here, that talk about whether or not there was trace aspiration or gross aspiration or anything else, doesn't tell you about the physiology, and then proceeds to make recommendations. Well, if you don't know the history behind that person, I would say you cannot make recommendations. 
end of because the recommendations aren't based on the physiology and the biomechanics they're based on the person and the context in which they live so in my ideal clinic in the UK I was fortunate enough to be able to request that what we call the treating physician came in and so the hospital the way the healthcare set up there is that there's no separation between community and the acute service you're all under the national health service so I worked one day a week in this hospital and I was the dysphagia service, if you like. But I would in the afternoons be out in the community seeing people in their own homes or maybe on the acute wards. And in the mornings, I ran the video fluoroscopic swallow clinic. And thinking about all the experiences I'd had before when you go into a clinic and you're not in your own territory and all that kind of stuff. I said, right, I will be in on every single video fluoroscopic swallow exam and I will get to know the radiologists and I will deal with all the technology and the barium because when you come in as a visitor to a clinic it's quite nerve-wracking learning the territory that meant I got to see video fluoroscopic swallow examinations right across the whole you know lifespan but it was really important for me to have the speech pathologist speech language pathologist who treated the patient in that room because they could tell me what was going on with the person why they'd asked for the video fluoroscopic swallow exam they knew that person they may have been from the community so they may have been working with them for you know a couple of years or they may have been someone in the hospital another speech language pathologist who'd referred that person down so they'd only known them for two or three days but still they had that knowledge about the history and and the clinical and so I didn't need to be doing that stuff in the x-ray room because somebody had that information and although they looked to me the hospital-based folk as the dysphagia expert as well and so sometimes I was referring my own patients it was great because we could have this discussion with the patient and on the rare occasion where someone came through who hadn't come through our service I would take them out and sit in the waiting room with them. I had that luxury to do a clinical swallow examination, have a chat with them out in the waiting room and access to all their medical records, the single medical record. So if I think about those principles applying here, it's what I was talking about with the leg x-ray. If you're in a situation where someone is being sent to you for that particular examination, that particular instrumental examination, I think you have to view yourself as the expert who knows about that examination, that is not the expert who knows how to treat that patient. And they're different and they're equal, but it's the person back in the community or in a different part of the hospital. That's the person, I think, who should be managing what's appropriate in discussion with that patient, not these reports that come out from particularly acute-based therapists. And when those reports come out, I think we still have a culture, particularly, you know, I hear this out in the community setting, the speech pathologist don't go against what the acute person said, and the institution don't go against the report that came from the hospital. But that report is clearly inappropriate at times, and I don't know if, Marta, you've experienced that. I have experienced exactly that. And the mark of a good report for me is not just telling me where the problem is, but interpreting why it's happening in the assessment portion of the note, such that if the photocopier were to get cut off at the end of the assessment, and I never saw a single recommendation from that individual's report, I could still be informed enough to make my own recommendations. That's the mark of a good report. I don't care in some sense 
what their recommendations are, because I know what a swallow study is. I know how to interpret the findings. And if you're clear enough in the assessment portion, it my interpretation of the assessment should match or come close to the recommendations you're making, because it's kind of a one plus one equals two. If X, then Y, then Z. You know, but if the recommendations are off, my question is, what's off? Is it the person's understanding of what happened with the video fluoroscopy? Is it the physiology that's different and not reported? Is something missing from the assessment or the objective portion of the note? I don't know what's wrong. So the two or the three portions should balance each other. And there should be no surprises whatsoever when you come down to the recommendations. So in the end, yes, I, I see that frequently and frequently enough that it's very annoying. As an outpatient therapist, I've seen it so much that I don't trust those reports. And I do a new instrumental in order to determine exactly what's going on, unless I'm able to be provided the video that uh, was done by a previous therapist. So that then is a waste of resources, right? Yeah, it's an absolute waste of resources. Which is ethically and financially inappropriate. I mean, I go as far as to say, unless the person doing the instrumental examination, unless you are the person who's managing that patient, you should not make recommendations. How about that for a controversial point? Because you don't Wait a know. second, I must be missing something here. What's controversial? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't think it's controversial, okay. but I, hear, I, I can we're feel... we're on the same page then. We used, to say, we used to say in Britain, oh my goodness, they're going to be shaking their twin sets and pearls. <laughs> Speech language <laughs> pathologists for years, as largely women, which hasn't changed, who wear twin sets and pearls. And um, you know what? Like strings of pearls, right? And every now and then I'll say one of these things and there'll be rattling of pearls <laughs> in the background. Oh my God, she's off again. So, but I think lots of, lots of acute-based therapists might be horrified that I'm suggesting this. Like, what the hell does she know? She's not even in clinic. Well, I don't mean this to, to what's the word, like, lower. I'm having aphasia problems at the moment. I don't mean this in any disrespect to people's skill and competence in doing video fluoroscopic swallow exams. The reason our clinic worked in Britain was because, and people walked out with recommendations, was because you had the two components. You had someone who was very skilled at doing that instrumental examination and knew what to look for. And you had someone who was very skilled in working with a patient who has to live with dysphagia. And there will definitely be many, many times when you can have two exact identical video fluoroscopic swallow studies or endoscopic swallow studies. It doesn't really matter. You will see the same biomechanics and you will see the same problems and good reactions to compensatory. That's American as opposed to <laughs> compensatory. No, no, you say compensatory. Don't there you, you go. <laughs> I remember the great Jerry Logerman in conference going compensatory. And I was like, I can't even say that. That's phenotactically <laughs> illegal in England. So you have people who are very good and, and can tell us all the biomechanics, but the real situation with the comorbidities, the different comorbidities those patients have, we rarely have someone for whom everything else is working perfectly. It's just 
their larynx doesn't work and their timing's off. We have people with complex situations in the rest of their physical system. And then we have people living in different contexts in the world for whom a little bit of aspiration is absolutely no problem or a lot of aspiration is no problem. And we have people who have the same biomechanics, but for whom that same impaired swallow mechanism is going to cause big problems for them. So that's kind of... What I mean when I say the people just doing the instrumental examination, let's respect the skill and knowledge that's involved in doing a good instrumental examination and know that it's inappropriate to make recommendations at that point. Because if your report is good enough, you're like the you're the mini video recorder for the person who is working with the patient and they can read your report just as Marty said, and they can visualize exactly what happened inside that instrumental examination suite and from your good report. So they know what's going on with the biomechanics and they use that and, you know, your skilled written recording of that to go with their clinical knowledge of the patient in terms of good management. So I agree with 100% of what you said, and I am going to offer my own controversial side to this. To the clinician, how many times have you heard this, that my reports are either good enough or I didn't have time to get into that level of detail or what did you misunderstand from my recommendations? And to that, I say we are salaried. We are not paid hourly as part of your career, not your job. It is incumbent upon you to clarify, to make clear in a medical report that is a legal document, what occurred. And to the point of clarity where anyone reading that report, whether it's a nurse, a physician, another therapist of any form of allied health, they should be able to understand at the level of, oh, I get it. This makes sense. Am I being controversial here? Am I being too hard on the therapist who simply put in the three lines of the assessment and say that it's good enough and make the recommendations? Well, I cut the time making the recommendations. Let's say now that's going to be the controversial thing about this podcast. Stop making the recommendations on instrumental exam unless you're the treating clinician. And then it's professionally inappropriate for anybody to say, I didn't have time or this thing was good enough. If you don't have time, you have to push back and say, this is so complex, we need more time. Because if we don't push back, like the clinicians, the insurers are going to give us less and less time. But I struggle, you know, ASHA requires of us in the code of ethics that we must know our own competence. I'm not going to go in and speaking speaking valves because I haven't dealt with a tracheostomy, a person with a tracheostomy for 20 years. I know my incompetence there. Exactly the same in instrumental examinations. And I, I know in some hospitals, they're short therapists and they want people to cover where they shouldn't cover. And this is another thorny issue. But the bottom line is it's your professional judgment and your, as you say, Marty, your career and, you know, we were, I can remember Trudy Stewart, who's this brilliant clinician, she did our professional studies and she got us very good at being clear with our writing because she said, I want you to imagine your notes, your handwritten case notes projected on the wall in a court of law. And it put the fear of God into us. <laughs> 
But it made us really good at writing stuff, exactly as you say. So another clinician, could, another speech-language pathologist could come in the next day and know exactly what's gone on, or the teacher or the physician. And that's one of the things I get the students here, is actually to write a summary for different professionals from the same clinical report. That's but a great I think, exercise. I think it's completely inappropriate for people to say, this is good enough. No, it's not good enough unless you told me what happened in that instrumental examination. So I can, I can visualize, you know, exactly what's going on. So I have two points. And one of them, Teresa, I'm going to set you up for because you've had several, I think, episodes address the issue of new clinicians coming into swallowing and the reduced level of skill that's necessary coming into these areas. So I'll let you ponder that for about five seconds while I say this. It's one of those things where, you know, people may consider this a job and, you know, you come in at 7.30, you leave at 4.30 kind of situation. I can't even tell you the countless number of hours I have spent beyond the time of 4.30, 5 o'clock. I've been in the hospital till 7 o'clock in the evening when I was working as a clinician only pre-PhD just to make sure that my notes were the way that they needed to be. I needed to catch up on the day's notes after seeing nine patients, the combination of outpatient and inpatient acute care. You know, at one point during my clinical fellowship, and maybe we all have these moments, you know, it was policy for us to, once we were done with the video fluoroscopy, we didn't do endoscopy at the time, to post your recommendations on the medical chart, as well as put together these goldenrod signs that go over the head of the bed, recommending the diet, how the patient should be taking their meds, how the patient should be using strategies while eating. Okay. And of course, in my clinical fellow moment back then, I forgot to post that sign over the head of the bed. And here I am home at night, eight o'clock in the evening. And I have this epiphany of, oh God, <laughs> I forgot to post the sign. At the time, I just happened to be living with my parents. My parents thought I was absolutely out of my mind. I got in the car, drove 20 minutes to the hospital, raced up to the patient's bedside to put that sign over the head of the bed for, unfortunately, I had missed dinner, but definitely breakfast the next morning by the time I saw the patient. And I came home after 9.30 at night. So, you know, in some sense for me, obligation and time has no boundaries. This is about the patients. This is, these are people who are extremely vulnerable, so to speak, because they're at the mercy of recommendations and procedures and everything that's going on in the hospital. So don't they deserve that respect? And that's where my head was. That's where my head still is. So Teresa, you, you know, you've had folks on your podcast talking about this stuff. I think this seems an appropriate discussion along those lines. Yeah, I've got so many points I want to make here. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, number one, Paula, I'm so glad you joined us to kind of throw in this whole ethical piece. We act like it's just a piece of the pie when really it should be the entire overshadowing of what we do. And I hate to say that I have this one hospital that literally keeps me in business because the reports are so poor. And just yesterday, the one hospital... It's a checkbox, you know, checkbox kind of report. And they checked no epiglottic inversion. And in the recommendation section, it said pudding and puree, pudding thick liquids, puree diet. 
So the SLP, treating SLP tried to do her due diligence and call and say, what else went on here? What am I missing here? She said, well, he aspirated everything. So that's what we decided would be the safest. Okay, well, what else went on besides no epiglottic inversion? Well, I don't know. That's all I saw. Okay, so at this point, do we question the other SLP's training or competency? You know, it's like that's a really hard game to play. But on the flip side, I go in yesterday to do the fees, and the patient said, if you make me drink this pudding-thick liquid, I just want you to find someone to shoot me. And I said, okay, so that's out of the question. Let's see what we can do. And so I have that luxury of exactly what you said, Paul, of having the treating and the assessing clinicians bounce ideas off each other. I had that treating SLP there to tell me this backstory and, you know, what was important to the patient. And the patient said, I'm 93 years old. I don't care if I'm aspirating on everything. I just want to eat. So, you know, at this point, do we even do the study? Because he's going to go ahead and eat everything that he wants to anyways. So that was kind of a real, you know, I said that, I said, should we even do it? And, you know, he said, yeah, let's see what we can see. But I'm just telling you right now that I'm going to eat what I want to eat. I'm 93 years old. So I think that kind of goes back to what you said about at what point, you know, do we do these instrumental assessments if the patient is dead set on his rights? So the counter argument will be, well, a person can't make an informed decision if they don't have all the data available to them that they can understand, right? So that's that's what informed consent is about. So, of course, you have to do the instrumental swallow examination because this 93-year-old person can't make a valued decision if they don't know exactly what's going on. So, and I've heard this argument <laughs> from close colleagues, and I would say, well... In this particular case, you have you already have some kind of instrumental examination, but you can talk about the need for extra information and if that extra information is needed or not in order to make the decision. So if this person who sounds like they have, you know, full capacity, they're understanding what's going on and capacity means that you understand the costs and benefits of any proposed intervention and that of no intervention, that is always an option. And so we could say to this person, well, if we don't do an instrumental examination, let's say you haven't had the one in hospital, we don't know exactly what's going on inside. And so we don't know the nature of the cost. I always talk about costs and benefits rather than risk because risk can be a good thing as well. That's what the lottery is all about. But the person can say, well, I understand that stuff may be going on to my chest and I understand that I may not know that's happening because let's say this person is silently aspirating and I understand the consequences of not keeping my mouth clean. The worst case scenario, I'm aspirating pathogens. When Remember, it's not if you aspirate, it's what you aspirate that's a problem. But whatever the outcome is, from my swallow bits are working fine to they're not working fine, I am going to remain on a normal diet. And if they understand that, then you don't need to go ahead with that instrumental examination. But you have to have this discussion with them, right? If during the discussion they say, well, okay, I see, maybe it would be helpful. I mean, I'm probably going to stick with not having the pudding, but I kind of, maybe we should know so that I can see what's going on. Then you go ahead and do the instrumental examination because there's a maybe in there, 
right? And that's okay. But I do think, and I I don't know if, if I can, I'm not going to mention this too much, but there's an event going on in Chicago, <laughs> a big swallowing event. And I've been tasked with talking at the end of the day um, on should we do an instrumental assessment or not? And almost everybody's going to say, of course we should, because you need baselines and you need information to make decisions and blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to propose that actually, no, you don't. And one of the scenarios could be what I just talked about. And that brings me back to this big point that I was thinking about while I was listening to both of you talking. We get this sense that people should be making recommendations, I suspect, in their video fluoroscopic swallow reports, because that's kind of how people are taught because the presumption is that you're going to know about the patient. And I don't teach dysphagia here at Pittsburgh, so I can't, I'm not talking about my classes and I'm not, I'm not making judgments on anybody else's classes, but I just, you know, I've gone to enough continuing education events to know this is the sense we get. We should be, we should know enough to make the decision. And lots of the people, the big names in dysphagia, whether they're researchers or clinicians or both, they're often involved in clinics where they do see people over a period of time. And so they can be making recommendations and or they have access to lots of clinical information that's come in. They're not typically in the kind of scenario in the local district hospital where no information's come up the way, a body appears in x-ray, you do a study on it and the body goes back to the skilled nursing facility or the community home. And so I feel that people think they have to be making recommendations, but they don't have enough information to be making those recommendations. And if you don't have that historical and like the patient package information, you can't ethically and competently make those judgments because you're missing information. What you can do is give us a detailed report. We come back to this on what happened biomechanically. What went in, what went down, which way it went down. And maybe that's the discussion we should be having in the big wide world instead of lots of the things that are going on about how much is the, you know, my thing about velum wiggling and, you know, how many center poise exactly is that consistency, but more related to these, the practical scenario of looking after patients with the resources that are available to people. So here's the question that, plays a little bit of devil's advocate, but it's the elephant in the middle of the room. Let's assume that that becomes the model where you have the subjective, the objective, and the assessment portion of the note that's passed on to the next therapist. No recommendations, okay? And I don't disagree with that model, okay? It makes a lot of sense. On one side, it's the other person the the non-instrumental person who knows the patient more and specifically in the outpatient set. By the same token, that clinician in the outpatient setting may be an aphasiologist who doesn't have a lot of experience with dysphagia. And they're heavily reliant on the recommendations from the instrumental study that's done. So now we're at an impasse because we have the dysphagia diagnostician who is not giving the recommendation but wrote an excellent report. And we have the individual in the outpatient setting who is 
And a physiologist who knows enough to be dangerous, and I use the term in air quotes, when it comes to dysphagia, because their forte happens to be speech and language, not swallowing. So now how do we get the two of them together? Well, and, and people have asked me like how I started my blog and things like that. And that's exactly where it all stemmed from was I was the one doing writing the reports and giving it to the clinician. And it just so happened that at one point I had like eight different CFs were the treating clinicians. And they constantly were asking me at the time I was just writing diet recommendations. I never wrote anything about exercise or treatment recommendations. And they would constantly call me and say, okay, this is great, but what do I do for treatment? What do you recommend? And, and I kind of expected that they might have some clinical input, but then I just realized they were so inexperienced and really relying on me to help spoon feed them that information. But, you know, I don't know if spoon feed is the right word, but that led me to actually providing more detailed recommendations to help the counterpart. I'm perfectly fine with recommendations from a clinician who's competent to make them, who saw firsthand what I didn't. I'm happy to trust that individual. But when the breakdown for me is the report, when I see X in the assessment and Y in the recommendations, and the two of them do not match what's in my head, then I start questioning. And that's where the breakdown is. If there's a match, great. Everything is good. It makes sense to me. There's no reason why I would question it because exactly what the recommendations are is what I would have recommended based on what I read in the assessment. Paul, you're looking at me like I've got three heads. <laughs> so I will counter that with the only person who should be making recommendations is the person with the information all the information that's required to make those recommendations. So if, and that's an individual judgment, if you're in a situation where you have a really good report coming from the community, let's say, and actually Mary Casper and Kate Crival and I did a session at Asher a few years ago looking at exactly this problem, and we called it the translation phrase book between acute and community when looking at video thoroscopies. And going up the way to the hospital, you have to, as a community person, give really good information about what is and is not on the table. Don't even consider non-oral because of all these other things going on with this person. Like, just don't go there if you are going to make recommendations. And likewise, the report coming back from the hospital needs to be much more accurate on what happened so that the person at the other end can make the decision. And I think more often than not, when the patient is living in the community and seeing a speech language pathologist in the community, it's that person who, presuming they got report from the hospital, is the one who has to make the recommendations. You don't know whether they were highly alert and normally they're much more fatigued or vice versa. You don't know about the timings of medications. You may know about the diagnosed comorbidities, but that doesn't tell you about all the other factors going on with this person. And if you are in the hospital and you're concerned about what's going to go on in the community because someone is being managed by a therapist who doesn't have the knowledge to manage them, you can support them, but what are you actually doing? 
that person, that clinician in the community still doesn't know how to manage the person on their caseload. It's maybe it's some tough love is required. And I'm being deliberately controversial here. I think of a story, a scenario that actually went to a complaint situation and a colleague of mine who worked in the hospital, a colleague of hers within the same service, but dealt only with outpatient, started pushing the acute person who was doing the the x-ray swallow studies to make recommendations. And my colleague phoned me and she said, should I be making the recommendations? I don't know these people from Adam. Like I see their medical notes, but they come in, I see them for 10 minutes and they go out. And this person who has a lot of experience, this other person had years of experience. And she's saying, you know, you're the one who should be making the decisions because dysphagia is your thing. And my friend was saying, yeah, but you're the one who's treating the patient. You better make dysphagia your thing. And I supported my friend in sticking to her guns and that's what she did because she said you know I can't make recommendations because I don't know everything about this patient hand on heart she could have made brilliant recommendations because she knows a whole load of stuff and you know she's brilliant but it worried me that this community well not it wasn't in community it was their outpatient based clinician was saying on the one hand I'm treating this person but on the other hand I don't actually know how to do it so you someone else give me the information that's about knowing your own competencies. So coming back to what you said about not being able to make the recommendation because you don't know the individual. Or you don't have enough information. Or you don't have enough information. Yeah. So that begs the question, what is enough? Is that just I filling out a pre pause. <laughs> one Is of that my just filling out a pre you know, a pre well, that, questionnaire? That's my you question. Know. Is yeah. is enough you may have seen the patient in the six minutes, as you said, during the video, but you spent the other 24 minutes of that half an hour with the individual on what their interaction was with you. And, you know, we're all speech language pathologists. I dare say that greater than 50% of that time was spent talking with the patient to find out more about that patient and what their lifestyle is like, where they're living, what they like, what they don't like, their food preferences, et cetera, et cetera, not to mention their medical history. So, you know, at some point, if we're not going to be making recommendations in the setting of an instrumental exam only, you know, a treat, diagnose, and street kind of situation, then we need to understand what the minimum data set is that is required in order to make recommendations. That's the first part. The second part, and I think this might be a question for either of you because I'll feign ignorance on this one. What is the level of compliance for insurer reimbursement with a note that does not contain recommendations? And I don't have that information. I don't know that information. So I would say come back to why are we after this information in the first place? The level of information required is that information that will enable the patient to make the decision with your supportive input. And if you have spent 24 minutes talking with that person and you feel you have a good handle on how they're coping in life and what their other comorbidities are, you may well be in a position to make reasonable recommendations. If that person's being managed by someone or supported is better than managed by someone in the community, 
be aware that it's very difficult for that person to override information that comes from a hospital. So you had better be giving perfect recommendations that are really going to support that person out in the community. And if you can't do that, don't make those recommendations. And and how detailed do the recommendations have to be? It could be, you know, when you've said all the biomechanical stuff, you can say that someone's at risk of aspirating on everything they eat and drink because you saw that. That doesn't mean that you have to recommend they're on pudding thick liquids. And maybe Teresa could help us with, you know, what do you actually have to put in the recommendations? So I may say you should consider, this is what I'd write in a medical note, you you should consider, because I can't actually say that someone has to be MPO, non-oral supplementation, because this person is at high risk of this going wrong, this going wrong, this going wrong, including things like they're too fatigued to actually be awake to eat enough to maintain their nutritional requirements. So it's not just about the aspiration. I can, I can tell you what some of the risk factors are. Now use the physician, the one who's, you know, the buck stops for you. You need to make the decision about that. And, and I think you can make recommendations that show the risk without telling someone what their diet should be. I think the tricky part is it's institution to institution mm-hmm. to institution. They're all different. Mm-hmm. You know, I have some places that I go that what the diet recommendation is, is Bible. And the treating therapist cannot add in any of their information, regardless of patient wishes, regardless of anything. It's what I say the diet, what I recommend for the diet is what it has to be. Do I agree with that? No. And then there are some places that even I will suggest that there's an esophageal component. So I'll recommend a GI consult. And I've been told that I can't make those kind of recommendations. I can't refer on to other specialists. That's for the doctor to do. We're just to make diet recommendations. And then there's other places that don't care what diet recommendations I make because the treating therapist is allowed to make her own based on his or her own, based on their conversation with the patient and the family. So we have no guidebook here. So I think so it's I'm sorry, Paula. There um, is, so there is a difference between recommending broad approaches to care and specific diet recommendations. Maybe that's where we need to separate things out. Yeah. I think part of the equation, uh, both of you have implied, and I'll just hit the nail squarely on the head, is that they're they're absolutely in making recommendations you need to speak to the patient. Bottom line, as an outpatient, as an inpatient, I don't care where this patient is, we make recommendations. We don't make orders first. And all that means is that our recommendations can be overridden at any time. And I don't care whether it is a physician, a nurse practitioner, a PA who's writing over us, or it's an SLP who has taken our recommendations. And in the 15 minutes it took the patient to be transported from the x-ray in the hospital back to their extended care facility, things changed and the SLP saw the recommendations, but something happened and it could have been a change of heart by the patient all the way up to medical status. It is simply a recommendation. It's not in order. What I'm hearing, and I work a lot with people who work in the community, that's not how 
those recommendations are interpreted. They are interpreted as the word well, of law coming need to change out of that. <laughs> <laughs> so the people making those recommendations need to bear that in mind, and and I think people need to you know get off their high horse a little bit. And it's okay for you not to recommend a specific diet in the scenario where that person is being supported by another speech language pathologist. If they're not being supported by another speech language pathologist, that's, you know, that's a different issue. And you're right, it's case by case, but there is a lot of problems currently going on with reports from hospitals that don't contain enough information on the biomechanical side, which we talked about, and making diet recommendations when they do not know the patient and the scenario let alone talk to the patient about their preferences. They simply don't know how that person, the whole makeup of that person is and their comorbidities and everything else. And that, that needs to stop. Those people need to be cautioned because in many facilities, what comes from the hospital is law and it can be wrong. So Paula, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit more about, about the ethical side of this because I do have this group of nursing homes that I go to that they will not take into account patient autonomy. They will not take in what the patient wants. So what I see objectively, the, the doctor asks me all the time, what did you see objectively? What did they not aspirate on? And I tell them, that's the diet they are getting then. The patient just told you they're not going to eat that. I don't care. That's what we have to put them on. That's what they're the safest. And I have such, I, I, I won't even go into more detail, but... Go ahead, <laughs> respond to that. So in 1991, there was a federal level act passed and there are very few federal level acts in this country. And I've studied more law in this country than I ever did in Britain, partly because it impacts our fear around our service because like no one in Britain worries about getting sued but you know people over here have to have a warning on a cup of coffee that it's hot. <laughs> I mean I can't get a picture on that one. So the Patient Self-Determination Act says very clearly that the patient has the right to determine the care that they are to receive. And in 1914, this is how far back the law goes. This is taught case law. Justice Benjamin Cardozo is the person who wrote that people have the right, if they are of sound mind, person has the right to determine what shall be done with them in terms of any form of medical intervention, right? And this was way before they'd figure out speech language pathologists and what we do. They were really thinking about the barber surgeons. And that still stands. So you have that over 100 years ago. You have this federal level act that clearly states this stuff. And when you look at the, I've even got delved into the world of CMS and the requirements around CMS, which if, and correct me if I'm, if I get this wrong, kind of that's where Medicare and Medicaid have to operate according to these very strict rules. And in those rules, they say that the patient has to be supported to be in a least restrictive environment. The patient has the absolute right to accept or refuse any proposed intervention. And if that patient refuses a certain proposed intervention, you cannot, what's the word? You can't hold it against them. What's the word? If, if someone doesn't do something, help me out here, guys. You're talking about compliance? Now, do not use that word in front of me, Martin, I hate because the so word. help me, I'll come down the electronic tubes and I'll smack you. Um, no, if someone refuses to do something, you can't... Override? No, you can't hold that against them. You still have to provide yeah. them with care. So, like, 
if I report harassment, my manager can't... It's like retribution, but there's a different word. That's where my head was, yeah. Okay. So, so this is really clearly laid out, which is why clinicians, we need to be taught a little bit more about the law and about things like CMS, because it's very, very supportive, particularly in those community settings, of what we want to do to be supporting least restrictive. So the word waiver is bound to come up at some point. I just was going to say, <laughs> so what about my waivers? <laughs> so waivers, people think that waivers are going to protect them in a court of law. Wrong. No waiver is ever going to protect you in a court of law. What will protect you in the very rare circumstance that a speech language pathologist gets involved in a case like this, and it is truly rare, is clear documentation of the discussion that you had with the patient to get to the point of informed consent, which is the same as informed refusal. So it's a back and forth thing. It's never a one-off. And you can read in the notes that Teresa X, the speech language pathologist, enabled Mr. Smith to understand, you know, the pros and cons of the different diet approaches. And we know she enabled him to understand this because Mr. Smith said back to her these words. And this is what I do. This is what I do most of my continuing education stuff on. So you document what Mr. Smith said to show his understanding, which is very different to saying, I taught Mr. Smith about so-and-so. That just tells me what you did and not what he said. So Mr. Smith shows his understanding that he's going to go down the route of, you know, hot dogs and beer. And, and you've explained to him about risks of choking or, you know, oral hygiene. If he's on hot dogs, he still needs to keep his mouth clean. And, and that's what's going to cover you, right? If you're worried about that covering the backside legal framework, the big things that I talked about, the Patient Self-Determination Act and CMS clearly supports that individuals are autonomous, right? I have the right to decide what you do to me. And diet modification is a form of treatment. And I can say, no, I don't agree with that. And the law is going to back me up on it. And so, so what if they're not of sound mind? If they're not of sound mind, then you are operating with a substituted judgment. So you're operating with a surrogate member, typically a member of the family. If they've nominated one, and this could be a whole other podcast, if someone has nominated a person to be their surrogate decision maker, they don't have to be a family member. There are some restrictions in states that they can't be a member of the facility that the person resides at but that varies state by state but let's say they've got someone they've nominated them they're the one that you have to work with and support in exactly the same way if someone hasn't nominated a person most states go down the family line of married spouse adult children parents uncles and aunts each state has a a way of looking at things and you do exactly the same thing with them you show that Mrs. Smith understood what the pros and cons, and she was able to explain this back to me of, you know, whether her husband should have tasters for pleasure or, you know, full diet or whatever. Where you may get into difficult scenarios, I suppose, is, and that's why it's really handy that I get to hang out with palliative care folk, because they, they often have to deal with this kind of stuff, the team that I work with, where Mrs. Smith is saying her husband or father or child, whoever doesn't have the capacity, should be on a full diet. And you see Mr. Smith coughing and choking 
and persistent chest infections and the clinical information says that they have you know their swallow isn't good enough or their level of alertness isn't good enough right it's not always about the swallow and then the clinical team has to consider that person's information in terms of of harm to the patient and that becomes much more of a discussion and if you're in a in a facility that has an ethics consultation system or ethics board you probably have to go to the ethics board you can't just say that's clearly causing that person loads of harm because the surrogate decision maker might have had the discussion with that person even if i'm coughing and choking let me have my morning coffee because that's my connection to the real world right even though i can't tell you that is the thing that's really important to me and that's that really it's complex and it needs discussion well yeah i think that just sums everything up that we've been talking about i mean we can pick apart recommendations we can pick apart biomechanics we can pick apart he said she said but the patient has rights and that's what it comes down to there's a i think i, I hate to blame twitter on this but I think this is where it at least originated with me in the term in that patient-centered care is no longer the appropriate term. It's patient-guided care that resonates with me right now in that it's not all about making the patient better. It's not all about working for the patient. It's doing, and in effect, losing our identities as clinicians broadly, no matter which form and fashion of a clinician you are. Rather, the clinicians and the patient are part of the team, which I think is still the same focus as the patient-centered and patient-guided, but they are given more or less the equal weighting or approximate equal weighting of any other clinician on the team in that this is the way we'd like to proceed. So, you know, each of the clinicians weighs in, they give the information that they would like to be done and carried out, and the patient weighs in and says, this is what I would like to be done. And then at that point, the team broadly makes the decision on this is how we're going to proceed. I like the nomenclature. It resonates with me in that respect. And I don't see the negative side of the patient's focus or the focus on the patient being lost in this. I think the patient is truly then what the intention was back then with the patient-centered idea being part of the team. And just like anybody else, everybody has to be heard. What do you say to those that say, so if the patient, and I'm doing air quotes, refuses my diet recommendation, so we say, you know, nectar thick puree is what they should be on and they refuse that, do you still continue to treat them for therapy? Because that's a hot topic. A lot of people say, if they're not going to follow my diet recommendations, I'm not going to treat them they're not going to participate in therapy. And I won't say the C word, Paula, compliance, but what, what do you say to that? So if we remember the big picture that we are providing information for the patient to make a decision about something, right? So we have to provide the information. I'm just kind of harking back a little bit to what Marty was saying there. We have to provide the information in a form that the patient can make use of it which is different to just providing information right and for most of the stuff that we're doing it's not like if you take this one mouthful of beer you're going to die immediately we're talking about much longer and more complex more subtle things right so firstly 
how have you presented your recommendations and on what basis did you present them to the patient? Was it in a way that they could understand and make, you know, make use of that information to make an informed decision? And going based on what you just said, informing them is one part. How much did they understand of what you informed them is the other part that you've been talking about as well. So that has to happen too. Yeah, and I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't separate them. It's not about what I give them. It's about what do they need to make the decision, to make an informed decision, right? And, and that's where we have, to, we have to get the framework there and not in our own heads. What would I recommend as best is very different to what does this person need in their world to make a decision. We make diagnoses and patients experience illness and they're two very different worlds because we get to walk away from it at five o'clock at night and they don't, even if we don't sleep well and we worry about a decision. So to Teresa's point, if there's more of this dialogue going on, you generally find that there's less kind of like corners being taken between, you know, patient in the red corner and clinician in the blue corner. And of course, you can continue to work with someone because it no, it no longer is about those recommendations. It's what can I do to support this person who's living with this problem? And it's not about which diet can I make them eat. So one, you find people being less kind of drawing the line in the sand and that, you know, boxing ring corner analogy. So you will not feel as a clinician, hopefully, that it's all or nothing because it isn't all or nothing. And and the professional position of both Asher and the Royal College of Speech and Language Therapists, because there are people outside of America listening to this podcast, they have changed their professional positions in that, you know, when I qualified, the patient had to do what you said and the physician or you withdrew. That is no longer the case. You can support that person as long as what you're doing is contributing to them. So, you know, you can't see them just because they want to chat and you can't see them just because you want to watch them eat lunch. But if you're providing skilled input, that's the important thing. I heard a remarkable comment from someone the other day. We were talking about a case and a home health case and my jaw actually dropped. The clinician involved in this thing said, you know, it's really important in home health to you form relationships with people and it may not be for very long but much more so than I ever did when I worked in the hospital and you have got to get an empathetic understanding of where they're at and what they're living with and this other person said I absolutely agree it's all about the patient but isn't there a danger that if you're too empathetic you'll be drawn over to the patient's worldview like they saw that as a problem and I was like, am I hearing this right? You can be too empathetic and you're going to be drawn over to like the alien's way of looking at things. Mm. <laughs> and I won't name names, but it would surprise you. And I was just like, seriously, if we could understand the world that the patient was living in, really understand it, we would know exactly what information they needed to make the decision about how to manage their dysphagia in their life not just, you know, the little widget in here. And for some people, they may be 
I'm going to go on, you know, well, not pudding ever, because that's just an alien substance that nobody ever eats. And why that? And that's a very soft diet. And that's okay because of the, the costs and benefits in my system. And someone else might say, it's just not happening, which is probably going to be me. If anyone ends up treating me out there, I'm warning you, you'll be wearing the puree. But, you know, for different people, and, and I've had people for whom they've chosen, bizarrely, chosen the thickened liquid because it, it just reduced the coughing. It wasn't so much about the aspiration, but, you know, we worked with mango juice and smoothies and soups rather than thickened coffee. I Yesterday, I walked into a patient's room and the wife, you could tell they were just distraught to begin with. And the wife grabbed me and she said, I want you to understand that this is my husband, my husband of 63 years. He is not a patient number in your computer. He is not just a name. He is my husband of 63 years. Please treat him like a patient. And I and I just obviously was completely caught off guard, but I was like, of course I would. And it was, I mean, probably one of the best, you know, communication, what's the word I'm looking for? Interdisciplinary mm-hmm. kind of sessions I've ever had because respiratory was in there, dietary was in there. And we all collaboratively made this effort and made these decisions with everyone's equal input, including the wife, including the patient. But I just thought, for this woman to meet me at the door with that comment, what the heck has she been through? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a tough situation. Um, <laughs> it's anybody who's been working any time in any form of clinical care knows exactly what that person's been through, at least to some extent. You know, I, I see very similar things in the very acute care stages of ICU. You know, the patient may have only been in the hospital for hours, not days. And unfortunately, their spouse, their family member, their loved one has been dealing with this for the days before the patient got to the hospital. So typically, I'm not typically I'm not involved in the hours of care after the patient comes into the ICU. But I see the patient on average two days after they're in the ICU. And at that point, you're walking into the room with not just the predisposition that you saw, but added on top of that, this is a person who hasn't slept in 36 hours, the person who hasn't seen their house in two days, the person who hasn't showered, changed clothes, or otherwise, and if you'll pardon the expression, looks like death warmed over by staying at the bedside. And it's one of those situations where, you know, I've certainly gotten into the habit uh, long ago, but it's been reinforced with this idea of what they call post-intensive care syndrome, the idea that it affects family members broadly, the people outside of the patient, as well as the patient. My first question when I'm speaking with these individuals are, how are you? And it's not the, hi, how's it going? It's the, really, are you taking care of yourself? Because unless you are, the patient, when he or she goes home, is going to have some difficulties because not only the difficulties that you have as a family member treating the person who has difficulties as the post-hospital patient. So it's really important for those individuals to take care of themselves. But to walk in with this on-guard kind of persona, unfortunately, that's the healthcare system. I'm not dismissing it. I'm saying that that is the wrong thing but we can only do our part, right? So it just reminds me of a quote, and I use this a lot, and I've just started using it in 
back in the counselling classes where I'm I do a little session on caregiver burden, which is something that I'm very interested in. And I have a longer quote that I usually read out, but I'll just share the the final paragraph with you. It was written by a woman who, she's a PhD sociologist. She's not involved in our world at all, but she wrote for a number of weeks about the last weeks of both her parents' lives and, and what happened to them. And she's reflecting here on that her mother got admitted to hospital and had to have a swallow examination and they were adamant that she wasn't allowed to eat or drink anything including take seizure meds because she hadn't had this swallow examination and we've all been there because seizure meds for some reason are very difficult to find in alternative forms but anyway she finishes up by saying this whole episode left me with a sense that little account was taken of my in-depth knowledge of my mother having cared for her at home for five years And having been extremely close to her for all of my 52 years, I was suddenly cast into the role of some outsider who should defer to the greater knowledge of the experts. And I think that's, I would be really troubled if a patient ever came back and said to me, that's how you treated me. I felt that you didn't appreciate what I knew about my adult parent, spouse or child. And I think... I think we need to get better at understanding that without throwing up our hands and saying to people, have anything you want. It's all about autonomy. It is about informed autonomy. But I do think we lose sight of what the family members are going through when something catastrophic or not catastrophic, but chronic is going on with the patients. Yeah. I mean, after I left this session yesterday, the wife was just bawling and she just said, thank you. Thank you for listening to me and taking into account what I feel. And, you know, I went through the whole thing and informed her of, he is at risk for aspiration, but we can try this. If you're willing to try this, if this is important to him, you know, we had what you said, the cost benefit conversation for a good hour and I left and I think, you know, we all felt good about the conversation, but it just made me realize like, holy crap, we do need to put ourselves in their shoes a little bit more. And appreciate what they know, what they bring to the table just in the same way as we should be appreciating what the patient knows about how they live with their illness the caregivers know how and what's important to someone how they cope with certain things we see this a lot with parents of adults with developmental disabilities who are feeding them in all sorts of horrible positions people might say but they know that child adult child inside out and back to front and they actually know how to feed them in what looks like a horrible position but actually it works for that patient because they have way more hours of experience looking after that person than we do so we got away from video fluoroscopy didn't we we did (laughs) that's the point (laughs) there is no best it's why would you want to do one or the other and why would you want to do an instrumental examination of what use is the information going to be to you you have anything else to add to that paula (laughs) having having told marty to be concise yes (laughs) yes i think i've done my job i'm irish you know that's what we do we we're gifted with being able to blag things. No, I think... I'm a speech pathologist <laughs> just the same. <laughs> I think we, we should be proud of what we know. Our ability to work as clinicians and not technicians is because we should be able to look at each person uniquely and figure out how best to support them, which is a different mindset to figure out how best to treat them, right? And... If it means we don't write recommendations because we don't know that person's world well enough, 
we get over ourselves and we don't write those specific pudding or not recommendations. But I bet there's other really important information we could share with a team that's trying to help and support someone. And if we are in the position of being of looking after that person, then again, get over ourselves. If they don't want whatever we think would be best, they're making an informed decision, knowing that you've done your job really well in helping them understand the information and and work with them. You've helped them make a decision. I think what I always think about too is like treating patients with cancer. You know, the doctor comes in and says chemo radiation is going to be the best scenario for you. But we all know some patients say they don't want to go through that. And it's not like the oncologist shows them the door at that point. You know, they gather other options. What else can we do to to treat this patient? I think that helps me to decide this is how we should look at our patients. Mm -hmm. My approach to treatment is I almost look at each patient as if they were my own mother, father, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, grandmother, grandfather, and I'm naming adults specifically, but if you're in the peds world, it could be your own child. You know, why would you force any one of them who's ultimately going to say, I'm not going to do it. I don't want it. The child will say, don't put the spoonful of peas in front of me. The adult is going to say, I want my beer. You know, in one form or another, their expressions, nonverbal or verbal, are going to be known. And we need to simply respect it in every sense of the word. No, they're slightly different. They, oh yeah. Child doesn't understand why they have to learn to eat peas. I understand. <laughs> Before <laughs> those green vegetables broadly. I can think Donna Edwards will be shaking her pearls at me. <laughs> Children need to be supported to learn to eat different things. Maybe I took the metaphor a bit too far. <laughs> I should stick in my own lane with the adults, right? Yes. Is that what you're saying? Donna Edwards, don't shake your pearls. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think this has been a great conversation. Is is there anything else you guys want to add or? I think just be proud of what you know as a speech language pathologist. Be, stand up for yourself, push back with people who want to cut your time. Know that your art is helping people to live with something that's really complex in the dysphagia world. Dysphagia isn't just about getting nutrition and hydration, enabling people to participate in eating and drinking which is a liar, shows our individuality, it shows our communality, it helps us make connections with people. That is unlike any other thing that can go wrong in terms of medical impairments. And, and we can do it. We can handle those subtle gray areas. We, we can do it. Yeah, I, likewise, for as much as you know and how much you can relate to the patient, be comfortable with getting to say the words, I don't know. Start asking questions. Reach out to the colleague who you referred the patient to in the hospital and say, you know what, I just didn't understand this part of your report. Can you clarify it for me? Be my eyes and let me know what occurred. By simply saying, I don't know, it affords the opportunity to learn. And I think that's what we all want. We want to learn from these reports. The patients want to learn how they can make their lives better. So if we can first admit that we don't know something, then it allows the patients to learn on the back end of that. Is it so wrong to tell our patients we don't know all the answers? I hope not. I've been doing it for years. Good. You know, if anything, that's one of the things that builds rapport with a patient. You know, being boldly honest with the individual and saying, look, I don't have all the answers, but let's explore it together. Uh, that's the approach I've always taken. 
Yeah, I'd say there's a there's a world of difference between a patient who comes into you and you go, no idea, mate. I've got no idea how to handle this. <laughs> the patient should really run for the door at that point. Is that's very different. <laughs> I know this and this, but I don't know how it's going to play out in your particular case. Let's talk about it. That's exactly right. We all come from a fund of knowledge that guides us in a certain way. I dare say there's a person on the face of the earth that has all the answers. So for patients to even expect that we have all the answers is unrealistic. With that said, I think a lot deals with the approach, as Paul was kind of alluding to. It's let's work with this together. Let's find out what we do know to find out what we don't know and how we can make the best recommendations and the best assessments going forward from there. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you, Paula, Marty, for all of your input, thoughts, thank concerns, you, Teresa, comments on everything. Us. Yes, this was a great conversation. I really just loved every minute of it. Yeah, it's great to have the luxury to be able to talk about stuff. And, and that's something I would encourage clinicians to do is, is talk about it. When you're worried about something, talk about it. That doesn't mean go to some Facebook page where everyone's going to tell you that everything you do is okay. Find someone to talk about it who's going to say, well, you know, hang on a sec. <laughs> Did you think about this? It's like having a buddy who will be kind of straight with you, but supportive. And I'll take that to a further extent. Don't necessarily think within your own walls of speech language pathology. Reach out to a nurse, a dietitian, a, a resident, a physician, whoever it might be that can expand those walls and get you to think more broadly than you are. Yeah, I'd agree. All right. Well said. All right. Well, thank you again very much, both of you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.